1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Hello, this is David Hepworth. Welcome to a special Word podcast about music in London. Paul Denoyer is an associate editor of Word. He's previously written in his book, Wondrous Place, about Liverpool, the city of his birth. His new book, In the City, is about music in the place where he spent most of his working life, London. We talked in the Word office, and I started by asking him how he felt to divide his time... Between the two cities. (laughs) All my life
1: I've wanted to be on a book jacket saying I divide my time between. (laughs) Uh, But I do now, now that my kids are relatively uh, grown up and um, I'm no longer working in an office and of course nowadays one has email and the internet and so forth, so I don't actually physically have to live in one place the way that I used to and... uh, so I have a little flat up in Liverpool on the uh, on the waterfront, overlooking the um, overlooking the docks and the uh, Welsh mountains in the background. It's wonderful.
0: So have you got a different perspective on London now that you're not living in it all the time?
1: Yes, I always did because even when I was based in London um, for work and so on, um, I was still going back to Liverpool at least every other weekend. And so my, my my sense of both cities was always, I think, heightened in a way. You know how. When you go abroad, as soon as you land abroad, uh, your response to everything is is slightly heightened because um, everything is just that little bit strange to you. The the, t- the cars people are driving, the advertising billboards, the way people are talking, everything is slightly strange. And all my life I've gone through a mild form of this, arriving at Euston Station in London or arriving at Lime Street Station in Liverpool, always feeling this cultural dislocation for the first half an hour or so because nothing is quite... The same as the world that I've just left two and a half hours previously. So, um, so to some extent, I'm always looking at London through the eyes of an outsider, and I'm always looking at Liverpool through the eyes of, um, uh, of an outsider until I gradually acclimatise as high again.
0: So, when you were talking to publishers about about doing a book on London and music, what what were the elements you were putting to the to the to the the forefront? You know, because what, what, you know, some people might say, but well, it's very difficult to say anything about London and music because London is so huge and music is so various. That there are very few strands to it.
1: Yes. Well, right from the start, I thought I won't attempt to write um, the entire history of music that's made in London. Uh, in, in a sense, most music, most English music is made in London because it's where the music industry is, it's where most of the studios are and so forth. But what I was interested in myself was music which had a specific... Uh, stamp of London, and I do remember when I was a kid growing up in Liverpool, although I was surrounded by the the great mythology of the Beatles and so forth, I personally had a really strong affection for uh, the Kinks and the Small Faces. They were were my two favourite pop bands when I was a child, and later this, um, they were succeeded by um, Ian Jury. When I first came down to London, uh, Pub Rock was um, taking off. I used to follow around Kilburn and the High Roads, Ian Jury's band, and slowly in my mind, the Kings the Small Faces, Ian Dury, began to um, represent a kind of pattern of something that was distinctively London. And um, thinking about it, I thought, well, they're the, 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 the great storytellers to some extent. Um, and people kept telling me, well, of course, what they've all got in common is this thing called Music Hall. Uh, which I didn't really know except through these slightly cheesy nostalgia shows used to get on TV in those day, in the, back in those days. You know. um, but I, I gradually began to understand the link between Ray Davis and Hall or, or um, Small Faces and that East End culture. So those things began to uh, fascinate me, and I began to research them a little bit more, and... From the, um, I, I just developed a sense of London as being um, a place where a particular kind of storytelling pop song came from. Squeeze and Madness were the great, uh, the great later examples, I thought. And um, the more I looked into it, the more I thought, actually, this, this goes back way before the musical. This probably goes back to the, um, the broadside sellers. These were the characters who marched through the streets singing the news of the day in topical ballads, And particularly having done a similar kind of book about Liverpool, I was in a position to spot the contrasts. This didn't really happen in Liverpool because... London is unique. London is the place where all the news comes from. There was a great need in London to broadcast the news because it's where the palace was, it's where royalty, it's where uh, Parliament was, um, it's where all the great writers and thinkers and so on were based. So there was a great demand and appetite in London for the news, and um, I think a certain type of London song came out of came out of that old broadside tradition.
0: Yes, because you talk about also about that people used to write. Um write songs for a condemned people, didn't they? It, uh, <laughs> you know, you very vividly bring that, that stuff to life in the early part of the book, you know, the the, uh, the the fascination of the mob for the, you know, the spectacle of execution. Oh, everybody
1: and... loved A Good Hanging, yes. <laughs> and um, this was one of the great uh, inspirations for the songwriters. They, did, they tended not to be um, um, composers. What they did was they just pick up some uh, a piece of folk music, an old folk song, usually... From the countryside, you know, from time immemorial, they would have a stock of tunes, and they would just write new lyrics for them every day, according to um, tailored for the events of the day. And the most popular events for the public were the um, the executions at um, Tyburn, where marble arches now. It was free entertainment. Wasn't free it? entertainment, or outside of uh, Newgate, where the Old Bailey is now. These were great scenes of uh, and um, uh, Smithfield, Bartholomew's Fair, and so. on. These were places of great popular entertainment, uh, but executions were. Executions were um, very well attended, and what one particular they used to love the gory blood soaked ballads um, describing the the um, dastardly murders which had been committed but a, a sideline a kind of sentimental sideline was the alleged um, um, uh, last minute confessions of the accused who would look back with remorse upon their heinous <laughs> crimes and plead for forgiveness and uh, and look forward to redemption in the arms of their savior and so forth and this went down very well with the crowd the, um, the funny thing was, though, that these last-minute confessions all seemed to have been written the week before, <laughs> and we were all printed up and ready to go on the day of the execution. So the, the,
0: this kind of mix of you know savagery and sentiment and media exploitation is was was in place a long, long time ago, wasn't it? Ab- absolutely,
1: abs- absolutely. And uh, in the end of public executions in eighteen whatever it was must have been a great blow for that uh, for that industry. And I sort of say that the music industry at the time probably said that public uh, private executions are killing music. <laughs>
0: It's extraordinary, because I, I was looking at this this weekend and also looking at Peter Aykroyd's biography of London. you oh, know. Yeah, it, yeah. Which is it's, it's some similar themes in the sense that places in London return to their ancient yes. use. You know, the, yes, the Soho that. exists pretty much... As it did 200, 300 years ago, albeit different in lots of respects. But, uh, you know, pe- people pursue the same trades. The same strange thing seems to go on in the same places.
1: That's right. I Ackroyd mean, Ak- explores this in far more depth than I'm able to. But um, I do love the sense that uh, occasional, occasional physical sites within London seem to retain some ghostly imprint. Um, palimpest is the great Ackroyd word. This kind of faint imprint of, um, of subsequent occurrences on the site. I'm particularly drawn to the fact that um, the area that's now rather obliterated by point is the old parish of St. Giles. St. Giles's church is still there. Uh, but if you notice, there's a little stumpy remnant of a street leading from St. Giles uh, called Denmark Street, which is the historic centre of the British music industry. This is Britain's Tin Pan Alley, in effect. And this was, from time immemorial, the most crime-infested black spot of London, as was the area just down the street, at um, Seven Dials, which is where the music publishing industry began as well. And that in its day was a place that um, no respectable person would ever venture. And so uh, the British music industry has its roots in... The most uh, deplorable areas of London. It was, a, it was not a job for a respectable person.
0: Let's talk about musical. Um, because, you know, as you said, most people tend to only know about musical nowadays, even, well, people of my vintage, from, you know, the good old days on the television yes, and yes. these things being revived, uh, you know, as a piece of popular light entertainment in the 60s and the 70s. But, you know, musical, de- describe what an evening at the music hall was like. I and mean, we're quite near here where one of uh, London's main music halls was, wasn't it, on uh, on Upper Street? Um. Uh,
1: Collins's Collins yes. on the Islington Green.
0: Yes. Uh, so you know what would it was more like a kind of more like clubbing than a the theatre, wasn't it? People went, yes, sat at long tables. Yes,
1: it's not a bad analogy, actually. Um, the, the the earliest music halls in the in the began in the mid nineteenth century, and they were fairly crude affairs. It was basically landlords of um, pubs would just try and extend their custom by building a big shed-like extension at the back of the pub. And they would serve drink, usually along long trestle tables, with a raised platform at one end as a stage. And the chairman, or the the MC um, uh, had the job of not only introducing the acts, but of encouraging people to drink, drink up, drink more. And um, um, it was really just an extension of the pub trade. And... um, it's interesting how many how many songs of the early music hall were about drink as well. There's a great one of the great stars of the early music hall was George Laban, who became uh, known as Champagne Charlie, and all of his songs were sponsored by breweries and wine merchants. He would he would hymn the praises of uh, various types of alcoholic beverage, all paid for by the breweries.
0: <laughs> so it wasn't a kind of pure age at all, you know.
1: No, not not in the least. It was a very. It, it, it seems um, it seems quite quite opposite to our received notion of the Victorians as rather stiff-backed, um, prurient people. Uh, the musical was certainly very bawdy and um, often often really irreverent as well. But um, it was a kind of mob music form, and the mob, you know, the, the mob, the mob comes from the word mobile, it means they move, they're fickle, you can't, you can't pin them down, and the mob can turn in any direction. At one point they are murderously patriotic at the other time, at the other times they're dangerously revolutionary. You can never quite, you never quite know where the London mob is going to go next, and, and musical captures that um, that swirling quality as well.
0: Because also the, the great songs of those musical artists, you know, some of which people still know today, I don't know, My Old Man Said, Follow the <laughs> and yes, stuff like yeah. that, you know, it... it it really kind of hit the nerve of how people lived didn't it you know it it it, it in the words of morrissey said said a lot to them about, about their life, life about didn't my it life. Yeah. um you know what, what are the other ones what are the other uh, notable ones that are performers or or pieces of work of that time
1: well uh, mary Lloyd, who uh, who popularized that song my Om, about my Own man following the van was a great um, kind of weather vane of public opinion um, they would sing they would sing things like um, it's the rich, what gets the pleasure, it's the poor, what gets the blame, and, um, and um, songs about the evil man who waters the workers' beer and so on. But then when, there was a, when a war came along, they were suddenly switched from being um, radical insurrectionary towards being uh, fiercely um, uh, patriotic, and um, to use a word which was coined in the musicals, jingoistic. Right. Uh, the word jingoism comes from a musical song. Uh, we've got the... We've got the We've got the arm, we've got the ships, we've got the men, and by Jingo, we've got the money too, or something like that, you know. So, uh, music hall was very much the social commentary of its day, and in that sense, it seemed to me to be of a of a continuing line from the broadside um, sellers. Who, who, effectively, what music hall did was to bring indoors the kind of uh, news which used to be hawked around on the streets outside.
0: And there were an extraordinary number of music halls, weren't there, in London?
1: There were thousands of them, uh, a vast number. To this day, it's interesting that we tend to think of music hall as a kind of cockney thing. It wasn't exclusively. There were music halls in every sizeable town around the country. But through the sheer force of numbers, because even then, of course, London was bigger than anywhere else. But even so, London had an intensity of music halls, uh, especially in the East End and uh, just south of the river. That um, that the uh, the Cockney style of music hall came to dominate, and to this day, when we think of music hall, we do tend to think of pearly kings and costermongers and so forth.
0: And that kind of uh, that lairiness, that uh, you know, that spiviness, <laughs> that that, uh, as you say in the book, people still people outside London really associate with London. Yes, that comes was, from there. Doesn't yes,
1: it? The, uh, the the Cockney wide boy, the Barrow boy. Um, it it just struck me that. I mean, certainly, growing up in, in, in Liverpool, I, I'd, I'd always noticed that um, there was a kind of stereotypical figure of the docker in Liverpool. Not many people in Liverpool ever were on the docks, but they kind of took the docker as being their mascot, their emblem. They all thought, in a way, we're all, we're all kind of like dockers deep down. We're a bit light fingered, but we're lovable and we're wise cracking and um, we're not nine to five, and all kinds of characteristics associated with dockers. So what you see developing in the uh, the days of music hall is that the Cockney audience wants a kind of star up there on the stage that reflects back at them their um, preferred image of themselves, and um, just as in Liverpool, I always thought the, the docker was that kind of civic mascot. In London, it seemed to be the the, the costermonger. Costermongers were the um, street sellers, the barrow boys, selling fruit and veg, uh, form themselves into these tight knit East End communities. Um, ceremonially led by pearly kings and queens. And and their characteristic was that they were they were quick witted. They lived on their wits. They lived in the um, they lived in the margins of buying and selling all the while. And you can see how seamlessly this would lead to later stereotypes of the um, the loudmouth city trader, the Barrow boy. He was often himself an Essex lad, the kind of inheritor of the Eastern Cockney tradition. Um, but this was a great stock in trade of the uh, of the musical act, people like uh, Gossil and Harry champion um, uh, on the female side uh, Mary lloyd herself these were These were superstars in a way uh, ghetto fabulous as I call them in the book and they um, they were side by side, but the other great um, stereotype was the swell, who was generally a person of low origins. most musical stars were themselves from the people, so to speak, they were of the same um, they came from the same streets as their audience uh, but one of the favourite characters was the swell who was a toff who dressed up in extravagant fashion and paraded up and down and pretended to be on um, intimate terms with the Prince of Wales and so forth and this was another great favourite of the musical crowd. And,
0: and I suppose that's that's uh, something you can trace into the future, into the 60s and 70s and 80s in mods and new romantics and you know that in London you know the idea of you, you dress up right, you can, you can be accepted as, as you'd like to be.
1: Well, this is one of, one of the things I found very romantic about London uh, down the centuries was that, um, all, all, unlike almost anywhere else, London is where lots of very rich people live very close to, lots of very poor people. It's where the highest in the land, the uh, the royal family and the aristocracy, lived cheek by jowl with um, the London mob. And so the two were observing each other probably very warily from very close quarters um, ...down the centuries, and unlike the poor of any other part of the kingdom, the London poor could see the the toffs, the aristocracy, at close quarters and could ape them, and, if they were brave enough, could um, imitate them, and there was a great tradition in London of the, uh, the working class dandy, the one who thought, to hell with my ascribed status... I will dress up as sharply as I can. I will strut along with the best of them. And um, I like to think, I can't prove it, but I like to think that a lot of London mod culture has its roots in this. Um, it's kind of the Sam Weller character in the, the Pickwick Papers, the, uh, the man who thinks I'm as good as anyone as long as I can look the part yeah. and um, strut around. And the great musical epitome of this is um, the song Burlington Bertie from Beau, who is himself, uh, he's a man with, which is actually sung by a female impersonator, strangely enough, but um, he is a man who's got no money at all. He's, it's completely show. He's somehow scrounged together an outfit and will parade around Piccadilly, Mayfair, with the knobs, the nobility. But uh, at the end of the day, he has to slink back to Bow in the East End because that's where he's from.
0: And there will still be people doing that today, won't they? You know, that if you go to, to you know... London nightclubs they're not necessarily the poshest places are they you know what i mean they're just where they where everybody meets you know they're a kind of old melting pot aren't they yes
1: and that's that's one of the that's one of the really exciting things about uh, london and you know as a provincial and coming from a pretty much exclusively working class northern city it's very interesting to see that and that tradition of putting on your glad rags and um, the most eloquent spokesman i found for this uh, way of life when I was interviewing for the book, turned out to be Gary Kemp of Spandau Ballet. Uh, uh, (laughs) The Kemp brothers who were, in their day, the sound of young Islington. They grew up in the streets just around the corner from this office. Interestingly, as he says, at the very point at which the Islington middle class meets the beginnings of the East End working class, there was one road, the Essex Road, uh, which was almost a Berlin Wall of social division. Uh, And they lived on um, the far side of those tracks, so to speak. But they grew up with the knowledge that um, if a boy dressed up dressed smartly dressed sharply, then he could infiltrate the echelons of the um, of the better off and develop this kind of fierce working class pride that um, um, that um, bowed its head to no man
0: yeah let 's talk about the period between between the wars um, when you, you deal in the book quite a lot with um, Jazz and and dance bands and uh, very interested. You 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 write about Archer Street. Tell us tell tell us about Archer Street.
1: Archer Street, uh, which is is of course still there, it's um it's a side street that runs between. Let me see, uh, I think Rupert Street and Windmill Street. Uh, This is in Soho. In Soho, um, and this was historically the centre of the um, live music trade. Jazz music in jazz music really arises in Britain and in London at the end of the uh, First World War. Begins actually with a, a visit to the Hammersmith Palais from the um, uh, from the Mississippi original Dixieland Mississippi uh, original Dixieland jazz band. What are they called. I think they were called. That. Um, uh, and then it uh, it takes hold in uh, in London and the jazz musicians and the, all of the big arm, vast army of musicians who played in the dance orchestras would congregate by tradition in Archer Street and they would, they would hold their musical instruments with them. Drummers would have their drumsticks sticking out of their back pockets and the agents who were hiring musicians would simply go along uh, Archer Street and say, you, you and you, and assemble the orchestra for the night that way. And this persisted um, right up until, up until the, uh, the 1950s, um, even as early as... Even in the early career of someone like a rock and roll like Tommy Steele, they would still gather around, and certainly Ronnie Scott, in his early days as a tenor saxophonist, they would gather around artistries and hope to get picked on the casual labour system for a gig that night.
0: There is a wonderful TV programme that was done about 20 years ago during the BBC2 jazz season which I'd love to see turn up on uh, YouTube, which was just somebody's old home mov- movie footage of Archer Street, wow. of a load of people milling around in Archer Street. Wow. And they ran this in Ronnie Scott's and got Humphrey Littleton and George Malley and yes. Ronnie Scott and whoever yes. was around at the time to just look at it and say, and talk about all the people who are on the film. Yes. And it was absolutely classic. Yes. Um, you know, just just happened that somebody shot a bit of uh, bit of cine film at the yes. time. It's very rare. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, so... What, what comes over very well in that is that the um, the the guys the jazz players made their living in dance bands but wanted to play jazz didn 't they? so there was this perpetual tension that there was all these guys in Britain wanted to play, play jazz and there wasn 't really a market for it was there
1: no the the, the big market for live music in um... Uh, after the First World War, was for, as I say, the, the dance orchestras, which um, who had a good um, there was a good living to be had because um, hotels and even the bigger West End restaurants always had live music. Uh, if you went to, went up west for a meal, there would be a dance orchestra somewhere behind the palm plants in the corner, yeah. and then there'd be a bit of dancing later on and so forth. But this employed a vast army of musicians, which for which there was no longer any call. But the poignant thing was that the younger ones were increasingly listening to. Harder-edged types of jazz coming out of America, and they were t- they they were understandably tired of playing this to them slightly cheesy music for middle-class people to glide around the ballrooms to, and um, particularly in the later years of the war and after the war, many of them were going over to um, America. There was this wonderful institution called Geraldo's Navy. Geraldo was. Um, Himself an East End band leader. He wasn't called Geraldo. Yes, at what all. was his name? <laughs> Alf Bloggs or yes. something. <laughs> I forget now, but um, he used to hire the orchestras who would play on the transatlantic liners to New York. And by this means, people like Ronnie Scott and Johnny Dankworth um, got to travel to New York and were exposed at first hand to the real McCoy. They would, they would go to Birdland and see Charlie Parker or whatever it may be. And they developed this taste for. The, the new jazz, the bebop, the modernist jazz, and they brought it back to London. And that post-war jazz scene, which they founded rather in opposition to the to the trad jazz, which was also very popular, um, is is tremendously important in terms of the later development of rock music. People like Mick Jagger will always say, well, what we did, the, the rhythm of blues that we did, it really traces its ancestry to that jazz scene. And I think... Main, the breakthrough was that here you had white London boys who were completely unselfconscious about um, imitating the music of black America. They had no qualms about doing it whatsoever. They were far less self-conscious about in doing that than white Americans would have been. Yeah, I suppose definitely. to us, black America was so distant, so exotic, there was really no embarrassment about going up on stage pretending you were from the cotton fields of Alabama or whatever it may be. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast. A way of life.
0: The other interesting thing about the jazz players was, is, I think you say, that they ended up these guys playing on Rock with the Cavemen by Tommy Steele and things like that. You know, see, you got those, uh, those 50s pop records coming out of the English Tin Pan Alley. Well,
1: yes, in the, in the mid-50s when the British music industry uh, of Tin Pan Alley uh, cottoned on to this uh, new rock and roll coming from America... What's hard for us to recall is that at that stage there was no pool of rock musicians to be employed in Britain. There were, there were no rock musicians. We had the, the very first rock singers uh, like um, uh, Tommy Steele. Again, there were only a handful of those. But there was nobody to play on their records. Nobody. The, the nearest that we had were the jazz musicians, and the jazz musicians themselves despised rock music to them. This was infantile I mean, if you're used to the, um, you know, to the rarefied cold fusion of bebop, then being asked to play rock with the caveman, <laughs> stalagmite, stalactite, hold your baby really tight, to them was utterly demeaning, but it was ready money. Well, they so they would troop into the studio, <laughs> they, would, they, would, um, they would back um, some, um, uh, some new boy sensation, usually signed by this uh, fascinating character, Larry Parnes. Uh, they, would, they would back him, kind of holding, the, metaphorically holding their noses as they played this rubbish. Um, but from, um, but after a few years, a kind of pool of really, really talented British rock musicians starts to develop in the back room. Those guys like Clem, Clem Cattini, uh, Jimmy Page was actually one of that first generation of uh, backing, uh, backing musicians that came through and formed the core of the London session man market as well.
0: So again, you, we touched on it earlier. The the the, the blues, um, so-called blues boom, you know, that kind of arose from the Thames Delta, didn't it? <laughs> the, uh, from Richmond and around there. It's it, it, um, you know, Andrew Oldham always says that he only found the Rolling Stones because his mother lived in Hampstead, and and the Rolling Stones li- were were playing in, in Richmond. In the Station Hotel, in Richmond. In the Station Hotel. And there was and remains a train line that the North, goes... The
1: North London line. The North London Still line. loops around, yeah. That
0: goes uh, around there, and so he we thought, well, rather than have a dull Sunday afternoon at home in the early 60s, I'll pop down there and see this group. Yes,
1: that's how, how British Rail invented...
0: British <laughs> yeah. Which is an amazing accident, isn't it? But, but, this, but this whole region of kind of, I suppose, south-west London, you know, reaching out to Ripley, where Eric Clapton came from, yes. you know, yes. proved an incredibly rich area, didn't it?
1: It did, yes. Kingston Art College seems to be something of a crucible for, for this kind of thing. Uh, and a, and a, little, a little cluster of clubs like the, uh, the, the Craw Daddy was the club which was um, held in the back room of the Station Hotel. Which, now, which, which I visited uh, at the weekend, actually, is now tragically renamed The Bull for no reason. And uh, it doesn't have, and I can't believe this, it doesn't have so much as a plaque. This, uh, this, this, this station hotel, site of the Crawdaddy Club, is surely, along with the cavern, which itself no longer exists in its original form, is surely one of the um, yeah. cradles of British rock music, because not only did the Stones have their residency there, um, the Yardbirds and all of that generation cut their teeth in that club. Nothing. There's nothing to even suggest the station hotel existed on this spot, which is a great shame. Somebody ought to do something about it. I think.
0: So, so so what? What part did London play in that kind of that period of you know?
1: I think the well, London was already the the focus of the of the jazz scene, both the trad jazz scene and the modernist uh, jazz scene. Two factions which were forever at one another's throats. Um, but from the jazz scene came an offshoot called skiffle. Uh, skiffle was um, skiffle was mainly played by uh, Chris Barber's band. Chris Barber was one of the great um, one of the great avatars of the early jazz or the post-war jazz. Still scene. Around then, now, still around? Still around? Yes. With Nick Lowe recently. Marvelously so. Yes. Um, and skiffle, which uh, exists in many forms, but their particular form of skiffle was a kind of a kind of rough and ready um, deep south rural jug band um, variant. And it was treated as a bit of a novelty. It was in the middle of a, in the middle of a rather demanding jazz set. For some light relief, Lonnie Donegan, who was a, who was a member of Chris Wallace's band, would come up and do his skiffle spot. And, uh, more and more they found, I think probably to the disappointment, that the younger ones were beginning to enjoy the skiffle bit more than they were enjoying the jazz, uh, around the skiffle. Uh, Lonnie Donegan enjoys this freak novelty hit, the Rock Island Line, which becomes wonder of wonders. A hit in America, in a, one of those classic Coles to Newcastle reversals yeah. of the cultural flow, um, Lonnie Donegan promptly takes himself off, leaves Chris Barber, becomes a skiffle star, and skiffle becomes, um, not, it's not exactly rock and roll, but it was certainly the, the first music that the next generation cut its teeth on, because up in Liverpool and Newcastle and Belfast, all of these young kids think... Well, we can't play anything else, but we can certainly have a go at playing skiffle. You know, it's acoustic music, it's um, pretty easy, it uses homemade instruments all that. T-chess bass.
0: Yeah. People still had washboards.
1: Wash, when every scullery had a washboard, <laughs> yes. I mean, people wouldn't, you know, our kids wouldn't even know what a washboard <laughs> was. They? So, um, so skiffle became the, the entry-level music for what would become the first generation of, 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 of British rock bands. Yeah, yeah, but I'm always curious about um, Parallel to Skiffle. There was this uh, this, this attempt by Tim Timpanelli to try and do uh, imitation rock and roll, um, go, using, as we said before, jazz musicians because they didn't know where else to turn, and usually, you know, rather rather attractive young boys who had been spotted by Larry Palms and, and were given fictitious new names. You know, Ron Witchley becomes Billy Fury, and um, so on. Um, but that. I'm always curious as to know where that started, and, f- and I don't know whether you know better, Dave, or somebody knows better, but as far as I can see, it was a record by a guy a jazz drummer called Tony Crombie called Teach You to Rock, and as far as I can make out, this was the first British rock record. It, cu- it predates Tommy Steele. It, it postdates Skiffle, but Skiffle is a kind of folk tradition to the side. Uh, Teach You to Rock by Tony Crombie is fascinating. Yeah, It's really kind of rotten in a way. It's utterly stiff. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody can rock to save their lives at this <laughs> stage. But they're having a damn good bash at it. I find it rather quaint.
0: Because that's the thing that sort of changed with the Rolling Stones, wasn't it? That the Rolling Stones, whether you liked it or not, they could rock, couldn't they?
1: They, they, they could, and he had to, and they had to doff the hat to, um, to, to Charlie Watts. Yes. I mean, lots of elements in the Stones, of course, but Warren is the complete unselfconsciousness with which Mick Jagger would attempt to be from a Mississippi... Cottonfield. I mean, on one level, it's, it's an utterly comical conceit that anybody should have the effrontery to do that. But on, the other, uh, but on another level, of course, it so clearly worked uh, in front of an audience that wasn't really too hung up about it. Uh, Andrew Oldham always says he loved the Stones' straight away because as he cheerfully admits, he knew nothing whatsoever about the blues. Um, as far as he's concerned, if it was too scholarly, it was probably not going to be successful. I and mean, He just liked the Stones on a purely visceral pop level. Right. But the Stones, you know, they did have this Fantastic rhythm section in, in Charlie Watts and to give him his due, Bill Wyman, who, people who just really, really could, they could swing.
0: So um, Andrew Oldham on the Stones is a, is, a, is a, cl- a classic example of the combination of a manager from one tradition and, a, and musicians from completely a different one. Uh, I suppose Malcolm McLaren, the <laughs> Sex Pistols, is, is very—it's a similar case, isn't it? You know, this is a very London thing, isn't it? This coming together of uh, a bunch of unfocused talent with some immensely ambitious person who has, has some yes, kind of vision. Yes, uh,
1: this, was, this was a kind of re- recurring story which I, which I loved and which to me seemed distinctively London, the way in which the raw, unformed musical talents, usually a gang of young boys, sometimes a girl, usually a gang of young boys, will meet uh, a much older man who can act as a mentor to them because Londoners were, the music businesses, Londoners were... The, the state where the theatre is, it's where anybody who is versed in the dark arts of show business has learned their trade, and it's where they're based, it's where Tin Pan Alley is, it's where the West End is. And therefore, one constantly gets this combination of the raw talent and the, the shrewd manipulator who knows how the business works. Whereas the typical scenario out in the provinces was you would have a scuffling beat band. Eventually, they would meet up with the man who ran the carpet shop yes. next door. <laughs> He would become their manager because a he had a van and b he had a telephone. <laughs> Therefore, old old Fred became your manager, and of course, old Fred was, was you know, to give him his due. He was he, his heart was in the right place, but he was not cut out to go down to London and do the deals. You know, even Brian Epstein, who was slightly off to the side of that particular stereotype, even Brian Epstein was a child in the uh, in the uh, in the woods when he went to uh, to deal with the London music industry and signed these. Um, in retrospect, quite naive deals. But the London boys would generally find somebody like Larry Parnes, who was an impresario you know, he was a real old school impresario who believed in putting on a show and uh, Malcolm McLaren I think rather self consciously liked to model himself on Larry Parnes. So incidentally did uh, Andrew Oldham as well they liked, Andrew Oldham's great hero was the fictional character in the film Espresso Bongo uh, played by um, Lawrence, Harvey. Lawrence Harvey yes, um, uh, Andrew and uh, Malcolm, they love the idea of being the shadowy Svengali, the one who knows all the strokes.
0: Because that's know. one of the, the, the features of punk, isn't it, ironically? You've you got these very manipul- mani- manipulative manager figures, didn't you? Or Jake some... Rivera and Bernie Rhodes and all these people. They all yes, have fun, didn't quite,
1: they? quite, and uh, yes, they so, like, really whether they were or not, but they really liked to think of themselves as the men, the puppet masters. They were part response. of the act, weren't they? You know. And another lovely echo of the of the Larry Parnes era came with McLaren in that all, the, all of his boys were given totally fictitious new names. John Lydon becomes Johnny Rotten, um... John Devley becomes Sid Vicious, you know, Joe Strunk, etc, etc, etc. That was a pure Larry Pons, um touch being rather knowingly recreated by an, uh, a later generation.
0: Now, as the book comes up to date, uh, you, you start remarking, possibly with a tone of regret, uh, the, the number of uh, people playing a part in this story who are their own manipulators the, the, in the sense that they, they're stage school kids.
1: Yes, now that's that's just one of the Uh, It's just one of the interesting developments of, I suppose, music generally in this century. Um, And I was thinking about this in relation to... um, There's a piece coming up in the next issue about the Beatles. We've all done pieces about the Beatles, and I was thinking about how how much the show business environment has come to resemble the show business environment that the Beatles entered into and and, uh, apparently swept away. That world where you had to enter talent shows... Where um, cruise ship singers were considered to be as good an artist as, as anybody else where um, you would you would go away and learn your, learn your trade, in other words, you were not expected to be an authentic um, artist who had sprung on forms straight from the streets. We nowadays expect a higher level of artifice from our performers than we have done ever since ever since the beginnings of rock culture, I suppose, with, with the Beatles. We're going back to a kind of 1950s world now where show business is unapologetically based on artifice. We rather like the fact that we, once again, we have the, the Svengali figures. We have the Simon Cowell figure who is putting the whole package together, who is grooming people. Um, I mean, We're now not embarrassed by the concept of the makeover. 10, 20, 30 years ago, everybody would have fiercely denied that they've ever been made over. They are what they are, you know. And now, of course, the makeover is a staple of modern television. You know, there's no, there's no embarrassment about it. I was, t- I, was, I was this, then I became that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because You talk about people like Lily Allen as a, a kind of representative of the old London tradition. But also with a very self-conscious new twist on that.
1: Yes. Well, she's another, another thing that you get from London is the showbiz kid, the person most provincial, um, youths are themselves the, the children of provincials who did not work in show business, but more and more in London, of course, um, show business replicates itself across the generations. And, um, Lily Allen is of showbiz stock on both sides of the family. And as early as whatever she was as a child, she was singing with Joe Strummer and, um, her father. And, um, Alex James, you know, she was in that group, fat, she was singing with Fat Les, in fact, the, uh, offshooter Blur and, and, and the Brit, that, that kind of grouch show scene. So, you know, there was no innocence involved, like a lot of London children, there was no stage of innocence involved in that story.
0: So what's a great London record that's been made recently?
1: Um, the last truly, uh, I, I, I try to keep the story up to date, um, but I'm a bit cautious of, of naming things from the last three years because it's always a hostage to fortune. And, um, you know, in a book which you hope is going to be around for a few years, there's nothing as sad looking as, you know, as the great white hopes of 2006. When you looked back from the vantage point of 2011, you realize that, not to name any names, but, you know, Kate Nash, for example, was very hotly tipped two years ago. Maybe she'll come good, I don't know, but it's, you have to be very worried about tipping that kind of people. But I, what I was most fond of, and I, what, without naming a specific song, what I'm most fond of is the, the grime scene that came around a few years ago. It's now moving more into the mainstream. arose from the, from the East End, mainly around Bow, um, has now moved so much into the mainstream that it's slightly softened, and in fact has had has spawned two number one hits this year from Dizzy Rascal. Um and uh Wiley had his great hit with uh wearing my Rolex. Um, the, the whole the whole grime scene is so kind of reminiscent of um, I think a uh, musical. It struck me, uh, l- looking at the names that um you could you could almost imagine a yellowing old poster outside Wilson's musical hall with these names yes. like <laughs> Dissy Rascal and Lady Sovereign and uh, Chinchy Strider, who himself is just a number one, of course. They look so nineteenth-century and musical, you know. And that's that's quite story-driven um, music itself. It's often stories of the parts of London that most of the audience would never want to visit for themselves. But it's very much, very much in that tradition, I like to think.
0: Paul De Noyer's book *In the City: A Celebration of London Music* is out now. Published by Virgin Books. I'm David Hepworth. As ever, if you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, please go for further counseling and like minds to wordmagazine.co.uk. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at (laughs)
1: wordmagazine.co.uk.